Stillness deep, deep within us. From small beginnings it flows into the living water. This is our third session in our reading and discussion of the Gospel according to Mark. Um, we have begun with verse 21 in uh, chapter 1, and we've mentioned Capernaum being a fishing town on the Sea of Galilee, and that um, a synagogue was, a, was more than just a religious center. It was a kind of a social center, and synagogues could be started anywhere by uh, 10 Jewish men over the age of 40. And I'm now saying that uh, a Jesus here is said as speaking, having authority. Uh, that, that is interesting because it says he's not just repeating others' words. He's speaking from what is within himself, that divine, the divinity within him. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Anyone have thoughts as to what unclean here means? I would guess it meant they didn't keep the law. That is part of it, yes. Uh, that, is, uh, that would be a sinner when Jesus, you know, congregated with sinners. Sinners were those Jews who weren't keeping all the laws, the kosher laws or whatever. Uh, uh, unclean also just has this general meaning of defiling, that uh, it's not in alignment with God's will, that this un these unclean spirits, they're, they're not um, holy spirits. They're not spirits of good or anything like that. It's just a very general word at times that's here. I think it's interesting that um, when the uh, man with the unclean spirit speaks, he refers to himself as us and uses plural pronouns throughout that. He's identified as being a single person, and yet he's referring to himself as us and we. Yes, I think there's just, if we can also kind of think of there are different spirits there that are in control of this man that he's fallen prey, he's slave to various uh, spirits that are controlling him, that have sway over his right mind or how he should be thinking. It wouldn't be, it, the plural wouldn't be a status marker here? A status marker? Often the plural is used as a status oh, marker. Oh, oh. Yes, I, I don't think that ever really happens uh, at this time and Greek or in um, Hebrew either. And you do have in Genesis where God 
refers to himself as we, you know, and the plural Elohim, I believe, I don't know Hebrew, but I believe that is a plural form for God. It's interesting. But the ones who did the translating, at least of this King James version, would have been um, influenced by that practice of giving people of ele elevated status a plural pronoun. Uh-huh, like the king or queen would say, you know, uh, it's always amusing when, you know, the queen might say something, it's time for our bath. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, let me just look up something here in the Greek text. Yes, it is plural, but there's a, hold on a second, there's a note on this in the Greek. Uh, there, it's actually, there are quite a few variations on this text, uh, depending on your manuscript. Uh, but I don't see one showing anything but the us, the plural, no. It's also interesting the way he ends it, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. So it puts a contrast between the Holy One and the unclean many, or plural. Oh, okay, let me, let me go to our whiteboard here. The Holy One... The Greek has this ha, which means the, and hagios means holy. And it's an adjective, so that's being used as a noun, so that's why it's referring to it as the holy one of, of God. I may as well put that in for you, you two, to the ooh. So what's being said here is the holy one of the God. In Greek, um, you use the word the, the definite article before names. Like you would say, instead of saying Jesus, you'd say the Jesus or Mary, the Mary. And that's the normal way of, of uh, grammatical usage. Even in modern Greek, you know, if you want to say Sophocles wrote this, you'd say the Sophocles wrote this. So... So, so it's just an adjective here that's being used, and that gets translated as holy. It's also the word that gets translated as saint. It's funny that the unclean spirit could tell that this was, was Christ when so many people around in the vicinity couldn't tell. Yeah. Out of the mouths of babes. And unclean spirits. <laughs> Out of the mouths of uh, unclean spirits. So anyway, uh, it's interesting, really, uh, this word hagios, there is a word hagiography, which is the, the uh, study of saints uh, and writings of saints, that sort of thing. And that's this root here for holy hagios. Also, the, or the church in Constantinople is Hagia Sophia. Right. Holy Sophie, or Saint Sophie, that's what that is, Saint Sophie's. And Sophia means? Wisdom, right? Wisdom, yes. Uh, so, Sophia is wisdom, right. Sophos means wise. Sophia, Sophos. That shows up in philosophy. Exactly, which is the love of wisdom. Feel, Philia, Philia is love. You know, there's a city named Philadelphia. Okay. Brotherly love, the love of brothers. 
Phil, and that's the same there. Philosophy. Okay, we'll go on. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And once again, it's the demons. The demons know him. <laughs> yeah. And a demon is a little bit different than just a spirit. What I understand is a demon at that time was kind of something like a jinn. You know, we have the word genie from uh, these jinns, these spirits that live close to the ground, I gather, at that. That's how they were understood at the time. Um, and um, the, the demons were, were kind of like, um, I, I kind of associate them with um, something like a, addictive spirits. But they were, they were devilish, in a sense, too, of course. Um, these, these words do get mixed up a bit in terms of their meanings throughout uh, the New Testament, but uh, you get the sense that this isn't something you want to be, you don't want to be possessed by demons, of course. Why is it that back then there were more awareness of demons in people than there is today? Mm. What, can the, what can these say, Jack? Well, it's a different mindset. I wonder if it's a different mindset yeah. that we don't attribute problems as much to evil spirits now as they used to, but rather we look for causes that are more rational. I agree with thee. I think it also has something to do with individualism, that whatever problems afflict a person that they are his or her problems rather than being um, held captive to something else. I mean, to some other force that it's a cycle. It seems more like a psychological idea that people possess their problems rather than that they are possessed by their, by problems. I think we all, we, we sort of psychologize it is the word. Um, um, and I think we don't even want to accept that the, there are such spirits there within us that are drawing us in wrong directions. Also, I, also if you see this as your own problem, then you, just as a continuation of what Pat Patricia just said, then you see it as something that you can fix yourself and you don't need God to help you. But if you see it as, a spirit, then you could actually see that you might need Christ's help. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's awfully hard for some people to recognize that there is evil within them. I mean, that there are actual evil spirits that can control them, that they can be, fall prey to. They, they don't want to believe that. You know, it, it's sort of like seeing 
only the good within themselves and not aware that uh, they can go in either direction as to what they're, what spirits they're following. This uh, hushing the, the devils or the demons that Christ does reminds me of that passage in Revelation where the dragon casts out water after the, the woman who goes into the wilderness. That image always struck me as being a lot of words that were being given out to sort of nullify whatever power or uh, the word had to swamp it with, with many words. And I think that it's, it, this reminds me of that same technique of nullifying words of value with, with words that aren't of value. That can happen, sure. All right. Should we continue? In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. So often in the New Testament, Jesus goes out to pray silently. I think this is something perhaps us Quakers know a lot about, praying silently. And even if, in, with the development of Christian in the early centuries, as the uh, mainstream church became more and more worldly, you had various people deciding to go out into deserts and to become monks and desert fathers and mothers. And eventually you saw the rise of various uh, monastic orders and for both men and women. To, that really felt they needed to separate themselves more from the world, the world that was also coming into their own churches over the early centuries. It's so often Jesus goes off silently to pray, and it's something that we, we follow, and I think perhaps we don't pay enough attention to the many times this is mentioned in the four Gospels. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. Again, the message, I'm just checking something in the Greek here. That's verse 38. Oh, no. Okay. It's a, it's a verb there. The, to uh, proclaim the message is just one verb, but that's basically to, to preach, preaching, proclaiming the good news of God, the kingdom of God, as we saw in chapter 17 of Luke, the kingdom of God, that state of God, that realm of God that is within us. Not that everyone can even be acknowledging it. They may not be aware of it, but it's there. In 17, again, uh, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who want to kill him. And he's saying it's in, in them, in you, he's saying in the plural. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. A leper came to him, begging him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. There's one thing I should make people aware of here is the word that we use, leper, 
the Greek word does mean a leper, but it also means anyone with a, a skin, a severe skin condition. They didn't have the medicine to know the difference, you know, so that uh, uh, it, a person may not actually have leprosy as we know it, you know, Hodgkin's disease, but some other skin disease, but they were all thrown together in the same, the same group as being unclean, you know, that they had to be separated from society. This is an interesting variation in verse 41. My text in my Bible here says, moved with pity. Is that what other people have? King James is compassion. Okay, anything else? Well, some manuscripts say, moved with anger, which is interesting. And you could see that Jesus is angry about the disease. Mm -hmm. However, I should make some comment here that's very interesting. In Aramaic, again, this, this gospel, as we know, it was written originally in Greek. But in Aramaic, which is a language very closely related to Hebrew and was the language spoken by most Jews in Palestine at that time, Hebrew was, of course, the religious language, but most people were speaking Aramaic. There, the two words, the words for anger and pity or compassion, the verbs there, they, they are very similar in sound. Only a couple of sounds are different, which might account for some reason, somehow, you have some manuscripts having one and others the other. What are the two words? Okay, I knew you were going to ask me that. Hold on a second. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't have it in the text in front of me. I have to go look that up. Uh, it's in the other room. Uh, but they, they are, uh, the, the two words sound very similar. Uh, just a couple of sounds are different. I'm just, I, I would like to know if it has anything close to the word embrymione or something like that. Is that ring a bell? I just don't remember at the moment. I don't think so, but I, I can't say. The reason I ask is because I noticed in um, John 11, in the story about Lazarus being raised from the dead, that there was a Greek word that was um, normally translated as compassion, but that version of the Bible that I was using, Richard Lattimore's, um, he identified the, that embrymione, I think it was, meaning um, anger. So I, I just wondered if that was the word that was used here. Okay, well, the, the, the verb in Greek for moved with pity, compassion, is splunk, oh, splunk nice face. Um, and let me look at the note here. And others say orgish face. So I, I can just write those down. That's the participle for being moved with pity. And being moved with anger is you know our English word orgy, mm -hmm. O-R-G-E, that's the same root there. Kind of a different meaning in mm -hmm. modern English, but they, they are the same root. It would take me too long to look that up in the other room right now, so but maybe I can remember next time to, to bring it up. All right, Pat? Okay, thanks.
Immediately, this is verse 42, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Again, this is this word that John and that uh, Mark so often uses, elthus, which is immediately, right away, ASAP, that kind of thing. And he uses it over and over again. It's like, it's one of his favorite words. I recall in um, high school, I had an algebra teacher. Throughout the session, he'd use this expression as a matter of fact. He always used it appropriately, but I mean, it was amazing that you could almost, you know, count up to a dozen times he'd use it. And so in this gospel, according to Mark, you find this word. And as, as I've said, it seems like it's just a kind of emphasizer or, you know, like indeed uh, or wow or something like that. It's like otherwise it seems somewhat strange that immediately wouldn't quite be the right translation over and over again. You know, immediately Jesus did that or right away he did this or that. It's a kind of a hallmark word in Mark. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word, so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country, and people came to him from every quarter. I think this guy was just so overwhelmed by his cure that he just couldn't keep it to himself. I think many of us might be the same if we were in that same situation. Any comments? I wonder if he um, did give the offering. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he probably got there eventually. Okay, let's continue and go on to chapter 2. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, Capernaum again was Jesus' base of operations, I guess you could call it. That's where he lived, that's where he stayed most of the time when he was in Galilee. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and take your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. 
and he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. I think in our first session, we talked a bit about this expression, Son of Man, that Jesus used to refer to himself. You know, often instead of saying, I, I, me, he would say, the Son of Man. And in Hebrew, the word Adam, which we understand as the, you know, the first man, Adam and Eve, uh, means man and also mankind. And Jesus is saying he's a son of man, a son of mankind, a kind of euphemism. I mentioned, too, that how that gets translated into Russian is Chilevichesky sin, the human son. So by um, telling him that he should, by, by curing him, that was proof that he had the power to forgive sins? That seems to be the correct uh, logical implication. Did, did people back then connect these infirmities more with sin than with uh, a natural uh, variation uh, the way we would with science and I, logic I think, today? I think that was quite true, Jack. I don't know if it, they considered all disease sin or not, but uh, uh, again, when we get in, in chapter 9 of John where the blind man uh, is cured by Jesus. There's a question by someone at that cure, uh, who sinned, you know, he or his parents before him? So that there's assumption there that sin and disease are connected. And he couldn't have cured this person of the sin, or, I mean, excuse me, cured this person of the ailment in some other way. It had to by forgiving his sins. Hmm. I don't know. So nobody else could have done this then. The other interesting thing I just want to mention is, uh, you know, obviously this, there's something said here about the roof of this house, uh, that it probably uh, was a, it wasn't a, you know, a cement kind of roof. It was a roof that was covered by, uh, oh no, logs and twigs and uh, maybe, you know, like a, a thatch roof or something that they can open up, or it could have been tiles, that uh, it would have been relatively easy to to remove them and then let down the, the man on this mat, on this pallet or whatever. But that that there was a lot of uh, faith there, trust in, in Jesus that he could help this guy, this paralytic in some real way. I think that's, that's essential. Uh, with uh, most of the cures that we hear about in the Gospels, that uh, the faith of the person is very, very strong, or those around him. Any other comments? So there were other people at that time who performed miracles, right? Or not? Oh, well, in the Roman Greek world, I mean, there were specific temples uh, to a god Asclepius, you know, I mean, where... um, you could go to this temple and sleep overnight in the temple. And uh, I, I don't know any, I don't know much about the rites, but uh, hopefully something would happen and you might be cured. Right. I meant that we would accept. I mean, it was Christ the first person who did this that we would consider to have, we don't think that those were 
real miracles too. Well, I mean, you have the miracles of, of, that are recorded among some of the prophets in the Old Testament. So, and then, of course, I, I was referring to the Roman and Greek gods and their temples, and uh, it must have been that some of some people did get cured because they probably wouldn't have lasted long. They would have gone out of business very quickly if nobody ever got uh, cured. You know, I mean, the, you just you clearly see this in the uh, in the prophets and holy men of the of the Jewish Bible. And then that would have been the spirit of Christ through them. them. Yes, and of course, maybe that's a good verse to refresh our memories on. If we go to uh, Peter, this is First Peter, chapter one, starting with verse ten, and. The discussion right here is about the ancient prophets of Israel. And I'll just read it. Concerning this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the suffering destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. So it refers here to the spirit of Christ in these ancient Hebrew prophets, where they were speaking in advance about what would be happening to Christ Jesus. And, and so they wrote these things down in what is now our Old Testament. But it was the same spirit of Christ in them that, of course, would have been at work in the miracles that some of them performed. Any comments on that? Uh Henry, what uh, what chapter and verse was that? That's in First Peter, chapter one, mm -hmm. and it's verse uh, ten, starting with verse ten and eleven. Ten and eleven. Thank you. Yeah, it's a verse that people seem to ignore, and yet it says something very clearly about uh, the light of, the light of Christ that eternal divine spirit of Christ that is in everyone, at least potentially as a seed. But that seed needs to be watered by throwing off our big arrogant egos and becoming more humble and meek as our Savior was. Yes, I had never read it in that way. It's helpful. All right, let's just perhaps do one more section here. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Now, of course, the tax collectors were despised by the Jews. The tax collectors would be ordinarily Jews who worked for the Roman, you know, the op oppressive Roman government, collecting taxes 
from the population to send on to Rome. And of course, they got a particular cut of whatever taxes they collected. So they were just like the lowest of the low among Jews. And I had said, as I had said earlier, sinners were these Jews who did not keep all the rules and regulations of uh, the Jewish law. And they were just called sinners. But usually, we, you know, we think of them today maybe as public, the public sinners that, I'm not sure how we can translate that otherwise, but, uh, but that's, that's the sense of sinner as it's used here in this particular section. So what did he mean when he said that he was not there to call the righteous? I mean, weren't some, some of the apostles righteous? I, I think that he's being, um, what we call it, sarcastic there. <laughs> because he's just been chastised by the Pharisees and the scribes for eating with sinners. And so he is calling the Pharisees and the scribes righteous with sort of a tongue-in-cheek. He's calling them that because that's what they think they are. And so he's justifying his eating with others because he's not there to eat with people who consider themselves righteous, but those who are aware that they need something, they need healing. Remember that Jesus is called rabbi. And what does rabbi mean? Teacher. And we have this word disciple here. And in the Greek, the word is mathetes. That's the word for a student, a learner, a pupil. It's the word that gets translated into English as disciple. But in Greek, this is just an ordinary word that means a student. And since Jesus is the teacher, the rabbi, these are his students. And the students are learning from him. And if he's eating with sinners and tax collectors, being the rabbi, hopefully they are learning something like a student might learn. The, Greek, uh, the Latin word for student is this word, discipulus. And that means student, pupil, learner, and that's, the trans- that's where we get our word disciple. Uh, whenever I see the word disciple in the New Testament, uh, in uh, English translation, I'm all immediately thinking of student. We sometimes use these fancier words that uh, kind of separate us more from the immediacy of what's being said. In uh, Russian, there's a word here, uchinik which is the word that gets translated as disciple, but it's the ordinary, normal word for a student, a pupil. And if you read a Russian New Testament, that's what's always being said there, student or pupil. You just get a much closer understanding of what was going on there between Jesus, the rabbi, and the disciples, the, the students. Unfortunately, in English, that's, that's a little, little bit more problematic because we're using a a much less frequent word, disciple, than a word like student or pupil or learner. Also, this word, mathetes, you see the first three letters, that root there is the same root in mathematics. Again, the root means to learn. Any questions or comments here? That verse 17 in the King James, uh, Jesus' words are, they that are whole have no need of the physician, but they that are sick. 
I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I think he's making a connection between needing a physician and needing to repent. So I think that there's sort of a crossover there between the physical ailment and the, the spiritual ailment. And that's what I sensed in that whole passage that we read about the man with the, who was paralyzed, that, that what he heals is the spiritual ailment. And it, it happens because the person has faith that he is able to finish with sin. And I, I just think that that interpretation is supported by his words in 17 there. Okay, I'm just, I'm looking at the Greek, and the Greek says here, and having heard, Jesus said to them that the ones, I'm just blanking on what this word means, there's something of a doctor, uh, of the iskuantas, the, 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 the uh, I guess it's the healthy, the healthy have no need of a doctor, but rather those who are doing badly, <laughs> um, I have not come to call the upright, but on the contrary, sinners. That's my translation. That seems pretty close to what the English version is. The King James Version is a very good version uh, for its time. The one thing I keep reminding people is that, you know, over time, English words have changed their meaning so that, you know, you need to be aware of that, even though the word meant was the correct word then. If you take it in a modern sense that it did not have at that time, you'll come out with a, a bad translation. You just have to always be aware of that. And of course, there, there are a number of translations, uh, King James translations that have a, a vo you know, running vocabulary right along it that will explain what those words are in modern English. Okay, I think we are about done for today. Any other comments, questions? I'm still confused about him not coming for the righteous, but coming for sinners. I don't quite see how he's being ironic. If, if we think of sinners as those, he, so he was calling sinners people who don't follow the law. So if he- No, no, he's not calling, that's, that's the that's general Jewish understanding of who sinners were. But he, so he was, he had come up at that moment with a different sense of the word than their sense, than the general sense. Oh, yes. Well, I, I, I would suggest considering that those that were righteous were righteous in the Jewish sense of keeping the law. Oh. And, and they kept, they, they sort of saw themselves in a very particular way. And Jesus is sort of observing that what he was doing was not in the context of their understanding of righteous because only the righteous in the righteous's eyes would be above those people that were sinners. But the ones that were sinners were more open to hearing the new message and being reached. The self-righteous, Jack, right? Yes, that's what I'm referring to as the yeah, self-righteous. Self -righteous. I mean, again, there's that story Jesus gave about the publican and, you know, going to pray and yes, with the... Uh, the other, the, the two of them, there was such an, uh, you know, one just said, I'm a sinner, I know. And the other one says, I'm such a great guy. I give alms and I do all this and that. Yeah. There's such a big difference between the two. 
and it was just a huge different experience back then like the, these uh, keepers of the law that were rich they would make a big show of when they put some money in the treasury of the synagogue of the temple and then Jesus contrasted that with the woman who gave one of her last coins and how much more that giving that she did um, took from her substance rather than the rich person giving of his excess. And that, that's sort of another version of, of the take on righteousness. Got kind of in, in that context back then, the, the rich man giving more money was more righteous than the poor widow who was giving one of her last coins. She was considered last, uh, less righteous. But for Jesus, he understood what it meant to her and coming out of her substance. I think the same thing would be true today if, say, someone who has $50 billion, if he gives away $10 billion, he still has $40 billion. He's not hurting whatsoever. It doesn't even, it means nothing. And yet, I think Jesus is saying there's something much greater as to just the intent. You know, if you did that secretly, silently, without letting anyone know, that is perhaps true giving. And when we know our need, if we go to him, if we know we're needy, whereas the righteous in their own eyes won't go to him, so he came to save those who were needy, who felt the need for him. The ones who were aware of their need. Aware of their sins. Whose egos were not so enormous. Right. Okay. Well, thank you, everyone. Um, again, please let anyone else you know uh, who might be interested in uh, joining us from Ohio or whatever uh, to just join in. Okay, good night. Thanks. Oh, thanks, 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 Henry. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. See you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Good night. Good night. This has been a podcast of Ohio Yearly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. Our music was from Paulette Myers' CDs, which are Timeless Quaker Wisdom in Plainsong and Wellsprings of Life Quaker Wisdom in Chant. These CDs are available at paulettemeyer.com.